Let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Entitled this sermon, What in Hell Do We Need? I know, sounds like I used it as a curse word, but I didn't. There's something that we can learn from hell tonight. We're going to consider two things we need that are in hell. The passage that we're about to read, Jesus, in this scripture, he kind of pulls back the veil or he opens the curtains between this world and the next or eternity and shows us that definitely there is a heaven and a hell. That there are only two eternal destinies and everyone in this room and outside of this building will end up spending Eternity in either one. Does anybody know what an epitaph is? If you walk a cemetery, you'll see tombstones. An epitaph is kind of like something written, you know, was a good dad, was a good woman, charitable. Something would be said right there. And so I once read a scripture, or not sorry, uh, um, an illustration where a man he wanted something specific written on his tombstone. And this is what he put on his tombstone. He said, consider, young man, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you soon shall be. So prepare, young man, to follow me. Now that sounded pretty profound when I read that. I was like, whoa. Which is true, this man that's in the grave six feet under at one time was walking by. And then from his death or from his tombstone, he's now telling this young man that's walking by, one day you're going to be where I'm at, so be prepared to follow me. There was a response that was written underneath this epitaph. Somebody came along and actually scratched into that tombstone and said, to follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. Amen. There are only two directions that you and I will go in after death. People really don't like talking about hell. Isn't that right? And frankly, I don't enjoy preaching on it. But any obedient preacher is going to preach everything that is in this book. And hell is mentioned in this book, and I would be doing people a disservice if I never preached on it. Because I'm telling you, I am committed to teach the full counsel of God from cover to cover. I'm going to devote this message, this powerful message, this passage of Scripture about heaven and hell. There was once a little church that was looking for a new pastor one Sunday. They had a candidate fill the pulpit, and he preached on hell. The next Sunday, another preacher came, and he preached on hell as well. The congregation called the second man to serve as their pastor and hired him. 
when he learned the preacher before him was, had also preached on hell, he asked a, a wise old man in the church why they hadn't called the first man to be their pastor. And the old man in the church replied, when the first man preached on people going to hell, he seemed to be almost glad about it. When you preached on people going to hell, we could tell that it broke your heart. Church, my prayer in the prayer room today, and since I wrote this sermon earlier this week, is that as we read this scripture right now, that it would not only break my heart, but it would break your heart as also. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. Jesus says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one that raises from the dead. Some people call this story because as you read the Gospels, you will see a lot of teaching from Jesus's life on parables. And so some people say that this is a parable that Jesus is teaching, but I believe as many scholars do and some pastors that I've spoken to and as I have been taught that Jesus is actually describing an event that actually happened. In all the parables that Jesus taught, he never, not once, called anybody by name. In this story, he identifies two of the characters by name Lazarus and Abraham. I believe there really was a rich man and a beggar named, I'm sorry, that there was a beggar and a rich man. Now, this is 
absolutely reality as Jesus is putting together and he's teaching. It doesn't even start that and says that Jesus spoke another parable. He goes from one parable to the others, chapter after chapter, scripture after scripture. But I want to focus not on Lazarus, not really on Abraham, but I want to focus on this rich man for a moment. There are two things I know as I'm praying and reading on this that we really need in our church that we can learn from hell. Something that will help this church and something that will help the city of Carson. In fact, these two things aren't just for our church, I believe, or this city, but I believe it's for every New Testament church, every single Christian. We need to have a vision of heaven. While in hell, the rich man looked up. Jesus never revealed the rich man's name, and perhaps because he was someone who was well-known and everybody already knew who his name was. He probably named Lazarus because nobody knew who the beggar's name was. Nobody knows who that guy is on the end of the freeway holding up a cardboard sign. But everybody knows the mayor's name. Everybody already knows the rich man's name. Maybe that's why Jesus didn't name him. He is sometimes called in history books, aside from the Bible, as Devis, which is not his name. It simply means rich man. I suspect the rich man had a great funeral in which many people stepped up and talked about how maybe giving he was or how well he did in life or how great he was in his marriage or his family maybe dignitaries, maybe even the mayor of his own city or people would get up and talk about uh, how blessed he was because, well, I mean, look at all that he has. He must be blessed. And then I no doubt people would get up uh, at his funeral service and make the confident statement, he's in heaven right now because he was blessed with money. But one split second... After the rich man died, begins to get this strange feeling he's not in Kansas anymore. Something went wrong. Something wasn't right. Jesus simply said in hell, where he was in torment, he lifted up his eyes. He was literally in Hades. Hades is a place where the wicked dead go until the final sentencing to hell that takes place at the great white throne judgment in Revelations chapter 20. It's like the county jail on the way to prison, amen. He saw people as he looks up to heaven, he sees people in heaven the first thing he noticed was the torment, but the next scary thing he noticed was that he could see into heaven. When the beggar Lazarus had died, it doesn't say he was buried like the rich man or even how he was buried, but his body was probably, because he was a beggar, just kind of dumped in the city trash somewhere. There was no formal funeral for this man. Now, if this was a theology class, I would tell you that Abraham's bosom, or also translated into Greek, means paradise, was where the souls of all righteous that 
died, went before the cross. After the cross, Jesus took these folks to heaven. But help me tonight to not get distracted by the theological nuances of Abraham's bosom, paradise, and heaven. Any Jew would tell you and teach you that translated in the original text, it all means heaven. People often ask me that when we get to heaven, are we going to recognize anybody around? I am a firm believer that we will recognize people in heaven. We will recognize each other when we get there. I believe we most certainly will. The rich man looked up and recognized Lazarus and Abraham. If they can recognize us from hell, then I think we'll recognize each other while we're in heaven. Forget the fire and flame for just a moment. One of the worst agonies of hell, I believe, will be the ability of people in hell to see those who are in heaven. What a horrible thought. Can you just for a moment picture it? A husband that does not do right can see his wife in heaven. A parent or child that does not do right can see heaven and see their father, their mother there, or the father and mother is down below and they can see their child there. I don't want any part of a place like that. That's got to be the worst agony. Like the rich men, we need to lift up our eyes and catch a glimpse of heaven also. Heaven, just like hell, is very real. And it will be populated with the souls of individuals. How do you get to heaven? Not by being good or doing good. Nobody is good enough. You don't get to heaven by being religious or going through religious motions. The rich man was a religious Jew. He called out and said, Father Abraham. He knew the right words on how to pray. And Abraham even said, first word to him, son. Now, Father Abraham Our father of faith has many sons. I'm one of them. You are one of them, spiritually speaking. But even being Abraham's son or descendants in the faith, that alone also will not get you to heaven. It is only by being a child of God, saved by the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ, do any of us get to make heaven our home. Another agony of hell was that the rich man could remember his life on earth. That's another horrible thing that you and I can learn from hell. In verse 25, Abraham told the rich man, son, remember. I believe those are two of the scariest words that will ever be heard in hell. 
Remember, people in hell will carry their memories with them. I believe a person in hell will remember every single gospel witness that went to their life. I believe everybody in hell will remember every single service and sermon that they sat under uh, and listened to every altar call that was pulled, uh, every word of advice that was given by a brother, a sister, or a pastor, a confidant in Christ. They will remember. They will remember the words. Spoken by loved ones, encouraging them to live for Jesus. They will remember every time someone tried them tried to give them a pamphlet, a booklet explaining how to become a Christian. They will remember. You know, life is tough by itself. And sometimes people wish they could erase their memories. Kind of like how they can, you know, erase one of those old tracks on the tapes. If you didn't like it, you could just press the little red button and just record over it and record something new. I don't like that old song. Just, you know, flip it around and red button and record something new off the radio. That's why so many people commit suicide, to be honest with you. They want to erase certain memories that have violated them and they can't shake it. Everyone will have a crystal clear memory. Hell will be a place of eternal remembrance and regret. Has anybody ever bought something on a whim and then you're like, dang, why did I buy that? What the heck was I doing? Look at your wife. Why'd you let me buy that? Or you look at your husband. What are you, what are you doing? How many shoes do you need? Whatever, you know. You know what that's called? It's called buyer's remorse. But fortunately in this world, everything comes with a receipt. You can return it. In hell, there'll be what I call invitation remorse. It won't be over something you did, but it will be remorse over something you didn't do. Accept Jesus, obey to Jesus, submit to Jesus, follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you're not saved today and not right in your heart today, you'll remember exactly what I'm saying in hell. Is that too blunt? Because Jesus was very blunt. You'll also remember the altar call, the invitation to get saved and get right. Or maybe the words that Jesus spoke, come as you are, just as you are. Some people think, I got to get my life together first. I got to get my sins together. No, just come as you are. God loves you. And he doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Nobody. Hell was never, it was never intended for people. It's never intended for humans. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was designed for Satan and his demons, not people. But because of our sinfulness, we are all born with a reservation in hell. When we repent of our sins and come to Jesus, he 
forgives us of our sins. He cancels everything out. He wipes us completely clean and set free and makes a new reservation for us in heaven. Our name literally written in the reservation book called the Lamb's Book of Life. God loves you so much that Jesus died so you wouldn't spend eternity in hell. That's why he died. So the first thing in hell we need is a vision of heaven. You and I always need to keep our focus on what we're really living for. We're not living for this world, church. We're living for the day after our last breath. We're living for eternity. But there's another thing in hell that we need. We need to hear the voices from hell. Now, I know some of you, you've got your own voices already. But there's voices in hell that we also need to hear from. In hell, the rich man cried out. Did you realize that there is prayer in hell? The rich man cried out to Abraham and lifted his petition all the way to heaven. I mean, think about it. Abraham says there is a huge gulf between you and us and we can't get to you and you can't get to how loud was this rich man yelling to get across that gulf. Father Abraham. Now I could yell a whole lot louder than that, but I'm not going to. But a cry of personal agony. Help me. Father, help me, Abraham, help me. The rich man's first thought was of himself and his needs. And that really should be no surprise because one of the prerequisites for hell is to spend all your life thinking only of yourself and your needs. When he recognized the torment of hell, he cried out for Abraham to send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and touch his tongue. He was in agony in fire. That's an interesting point about the afterlife. You and I will be equipped with spiritual bodies that possess a sense of pain or pleasure. Lazarus had a finger, rich man had a tongue. I believe the Thirst the rich man had was the same thirst everyone has in this life. It is a thirst for God. Something of more than this, what this world has to offer. There's got to be something bigger. Have you ever thought that? It's got to be something more. And it's a thirst. It's a void. It's something that people try to fill with relationships or addictions and try to get upon their life and try to quench that thirst. But that thirst can only be quenched by God. As John 7, 37 says, Jesus spoke, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This thirst for God only becomes more intense and agonizing in hell. You want to be, you'd want to be rid of your current surroundings And you will be in need of God more than ever before. Praying, hoping that God at any moment could snatch you out of there. You know, people in our culture have made hell a joke. They think hell is going to be some place of fun, you know, kind of hanging out with the 
you know, the homies from the block. I'm just going to be partying up, dog, whatever. I heard that at the gym. I just looked at the guy and said, man, you're an idiot. There's no hanging out. In his speech to the National Press Club, Ted Turner said these words, heaven is going to be a mighty, slender place, and most of the people I know in life aren't going to be there. There are a few of notable exceptions, and I'll miss them, as in he's not going. He begins to laugh in his speech. Remember, he says, heaven is going to be perfect, and I don't really want to be there. Those of us that go to hell, which will be most of us in this room, most journalists and certainly are going there, keeps laughing. But when we get to hell, we'll have a chance to make things better because hell is supposed to be a mess and heaven is perfect. Who wants to go to a place that's perfect? Boring. That's what his, he begins to laugh and chuckle it up. I don't know about you, but hell's not really a laughing matter to me. Hell is a place of outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of isolation, eternal frustration. Remember, this is not some weird prophet seeing a vision of the afterlife. In our scripture, this is the Lord Jesus himself speaking plainly about what hell is like. Abraham reported this thirst for God and the physical agony could not be relieved. There is a great chasm that is fixed permanently between heaven and hell and nobody can cross either way after death. It's too late to change your eternal destination. So this rich man's prayer for relief came unanswered. But the main point of this message is in the next statement of this rich man. He also uttered these words, warn them, warn them. After Abraham's reply, the rich man realizes there's no hope for himself. So his thoughts immediately turn to his family. He had five brothers and they were all like him, religious but lost. So he says in verse 27, I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my house because I have five brothers. Tell Lazarus to warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Suddenly the rich man in hell becomes kind of what you might want to say, a wannabe soul winner. Now he wants to evangelize. Now he wants to spread the good news about Jesus to people. He develops this missionary spirit uh, one day too late. He begins to express a concern for the lost people in his family. You know, really, it's too bad he didn't have that same fear of hell before he died. You know, there's a powerful warning here for every person who has not yet trusted Jesus to save them from their sins and hell. Abraham gives an astonishing reply to the rich man's prayer. An astonishing response. Abraham says, your brothers, they have the Bible. Basically is what he's saying. They have the law and Moses and the prophets. He's got, they've got the Bible. They should be reading it. That's all they need in order to miss hell. Just the Old Testament. They don't even have the New Testament yet. All they need is the Old Testament Bible to miss hell. But the rich man insists that if a dead man 
could go back, talk to his brothers, then they would turn from their sins and they would repent and make heaven their home instead of hell. You know, just real quick, church, the rich man in hell knew how to be saved. He knew how to be saved. He knew how to repent. He's now telling Abraham, if this witness takes place, they will repent, they will believe, and they won't come here. The rich man knew exactly what he had to do before he died to make heaven his home. I'm convinced, absolutely confident and under the conviction that thousands of people know how to be saved. They just haven't done it. So this man wants Lazarus to go back and warn his brothers to stay away from hell. When they see a man from the grave, I guess, warning them, you know, he's certain that his brothers are going to repent. You know, I kind of agree with the rich man. I mean, don't you? Imagine that, you know, I'm not a Christian. I'm not, you know, I'm not saved. I'm, I'm a sinner still or whatever. And I was just at a funeral three weeks ago. And, you know, and I saw I was there at the viewing. I saw him. He was there. And he had his suit and they closed the casket six feet. Under, but then three weeks later, there he is at my front doorstep. And here he is. He's like, hey, Adam, I need to come in. I need to tell you right now. What's on the other side? And I've come back to warn you. God sent me to warn you uh, that there is a hell that you're not intended to go to. And this is how you get saved. You've got to believe in the blood of Jesus. You've got to confess him as Lord. You've got to do this uh, and believe in your heart that Jesus rose him from the dead. And if you have belief uh, in the resurrection, when you die, you too as well will be resurrected uh, and make heaven your home, Adam. Now, honestly, church, if I saw a dead man that we just buried three weeks ago, come, knock on my door, tell me those things. I'm getting saved. I don't care if I'm currently drunk. I'm going to repent and get saved. That would flip me out. Wouldn't, wouldn't it flip you out? What the heck is going on, right? But Abraham said, if they don't believe God's word, they won't believe if somebody raises from the dead. A few weeks after he told this story to the Jews, Jesus was resurrected and some still scoffed and rejected him. Today, it's not much different than then. People have the Bible and Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and many people still reject him. You've got the Bible now and a resurrected man. But people still don't believe. You know, tonight I'm sharing the word of God with you today, and I'm proclaiming that Jesus Christ is alive. If that's not enough for you to want to miss hell, you wouldn't repent if a corpse came knocking. Wouldn't happen. And that's what Abraham said. There's also a powerful message here for all of us who are Christians in this church tonight. The one thing that stands out in this passage to me is the concern the rich man had for his brothers. You know, church, in hell, people there have a constant, chronic concern for lost people who are still alive and headed for hell. And that something in hell is what we need. A fervent, compassionate, loving, caring, 
concern for people around us who are currently headed to hell. At funerals, I don't try to make any firm statement on where that individual went. My simple statement is, wherever they are, I guarantee you they want you in heaven. Think about it. And this is the personal application of this message. Let them ask you a very personal question. From hell, let this rich man ask you, do you have a burden for people headed for hell? Have you, like this rich man, shed any tears for your family members that you know are currently not headed to heaven? What about your neighbors or coworkers, friends that you chum it up with? Does your heart break from them for them? Is your soul crying out for them? Abraham, send Lazarus to tell my brothers I don't want them here. Completely convicted as I'm reading this scripture, I prayed that God would give me the same kind of burden for the lost. Found another scripture written by Paul expressed in Romans 9. Two through, t- uh, 2 through 3, and then also 10 chapter 1, uh, 10th chapter, verse 1. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel, brothers, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they would be saved. What Paul just said is he was constantly in anguish over the fact that his Jewish brothers were not saved. His burden, Paul's burden was so heavy, he says the words in other type of phrasing that he would be willing to be cut off from Christ. He would be willing to forfeit his salvation and his forgiveness if it would come at the salvation of his brothers. He says, I'll give it all up if all of them could be saved. I would give up my forgiveness, my redemption, my reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of my sins and make me a horrible person again on one condition, God, that she would save all of my family. He says, cursed and cut off from Christ. What a burden Paul had. As I'm writing this message last night, I'm telling you, church, powerfully convicted Because I believe dead people in hell could possibly, and please listen to me tonight, dead people in hell could possibly have a greater burden for the lost than Christians in church. Because now they already see what the outcome is. Sometimes I get so involved in spending time with brothers and sisters in Christ and fellowshipping that I 
I don't really extend myself as much as I should to those that need to be brought into the body of Christ. I begin to pray and stopped right in this. I'm telling you, there's big asterisk right here in my sermon. Closed my eyes and prayed, God, you can send me to hell if it would mean that every person in my family would be saved. God, cast me down if it means that everyone in Carson would get saved. Take my salvation, my forgiveness, erase my name in the Lamb's book of life. Tell Jesus to stop preparing that place for me, but start preparing a place for the residents of my city. And I'm at my desk absolutely broken. Praying, Lord, I'm willing to die and go to hell if it means salvation for those around me. I wonder if you'd join me tonight. Either at the altar call right now in your mind, softly under your breath, and begin to pray the same. God, give me that burden. Ask God to break your heart. You can feel the weight and sin of our city as you just drive by or walk in the marketplace. Let's play what if for a moment. What if God offered to let you spend 30 seconds in heaven or 30 seconds in hell tonight? Which would you choose? It's not forever. It's just a 30 second visit. Which location do you think would make you stronger? More mature follower of Christ. Seeing the glory The majesty of heaven would probably make you a stronger Christian, but would it give you a greater burden for people? If God gave me the option, and I'll tell you, real honest, church, my answer kind of switched after I wrote this. If God gave me the option I'd choose hell. I'm telling you, it scares me. But see, Jesus faced that cross and he faced death. And the Bible says he went down to the pit for three days. He faced all of it, not just 30 seconds. He did all of that for us. I wonder if you and I Maybe not 30 seconds, maybe not three days, but maybe at least three hours a week devote to reaching people that are lost. A few days ago, I was, what store was I in? I was in Home Depot. I feel like I live there. Anyways, I was in Home Depot buying some, I was looking for a pipe to put that 
flag sign back up, and I was looking for a stake I could get put in there and get it flown again. But while I was there, there's an announcement that came over the system as I'm there and just kind of looking, and I'm rushing, I'm rushing, I'm rushing. And the announcement came across, and it said, attention employees and shoppers, we have a code Adam. It's like, what the heck? What is going on? I completely forgot what I was at Home Depot for. Like, that's literally what they said. We have a code Adam. I was like, I ended up walking out of Home Depot because I forgot what I was at Home Depot for. Like, it shook me. Right? And then there was a pause. I guess what the person was doing because I had to ask. Like, I'm Adam. Right? And the girl, you know, but later on there, because there was a pause, the girl said there is a three-year-old boy with dark blonde hair wearing a light blue shirt who has disappeared. Please help us look for him. As I forgot what I bought, and I'm thinking I'm, you know, I'm, at that point I'm, I'm asking myself, am I Adam? <laughs> Did she say Adam? Is that me? <laughs> I'm walking up to the front. The entire store went on alert. It was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. People began to look up and down every aisles. People were climbing pallets. People were looking under, you know, equipment. People were running outside in the garden. I mean, people were running up and down aisles. And I'm thinking, I'm right here. You know, but it was a three-year-old boy. You know, they weren't looking for me. Because the one thing that came to everyone's mind when they hear that, or you get those alerts, those amber alerts on your phone, someone's been abducted. Someone's been kidnapped. Someone's been snatched. And everyone was afraid. There was a sense of urgency and purpose. And I began to run up and down aisles. And nobody was in the lines. Nobody was buying anything. People were just at Home Depot running around. For the next few minutes, both the shoppers and the employees fanned out across the store and the parking lot and around the block. The police came, they positioned themselves at the doors for the next few minutes, both the shoppers and they, everyone is standing still, not knowing what was going on. After about 10 minutes, the announcement was made, cancel code Adam, the little boy has been found. Then something happened at Home Depot I've never experienced before. And I'm telling you, church, it shook me. The entire store began to cheer and applaud. Smiles were everywhere. I didn't know who this little boy was. I just thought, you know, he's got a great name. (laughs) I learned from one of the employees, the little boy had just crawled behind one of the large displays. After that, I returned to my car. I thought, wouldn't it be great at the potter's house if we had the same kind of urgency and unity to go into our community and to search out those lost boys and girls, men and women, who are headed towards an eternity without Christ? And wouldn't it be good if you and I could celebrate like these even more so 
when just one lost person is found for Christ? Just like Jesus said in Luke 15, there is joy in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. So like the title of this sermon, what in hell do we need? We need a fresh vision of heaven. And you and I, we need to have the same concern for people headed towards hell. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes tonight.